Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following is from an episode of Farm Vlog, in which Fight Back editor Alex Grant discusses the future of Trotskyism and leftism in Canada. See Derek Farn can be found on YouTube and on Twitter at S-K-E-P-O-E-T. Welcome to Varmblog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome to Barn Blog. And today I'm talking to Alex Grant, who is the editor of Marxism.ca and an affiliate of the uh, International Marxist Tennessee's Canadian branch. You guys have a separate name in Canada? Yeah, we're called uh, Fight Back uh, in okay. English Canada. We're Larapos Socialist. Actually, our, our website is Marxist.ca. Marxist.ca, not Marxism.ca. Yeah. Yes, these these are important. Um, and. So I wanted uh, to start off, we're going to be talking about the trajectory of Trotskyism in the United States and Canada, and then we're going to start focusing on Canadian politics. But let's begin by explaining what your particular branch of Trotskyism is. So what is the IMT and what's its historical relationship to to uh, Trotskyist branches as a whole? Right. Well, I, I'd call us pretty orthodox Marxists. And uh, following the ideas of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky, and uh, our particular sort of branch of Trotskyism, if you like, uh, comes out from of Ted Grant, and uh, he was one of the main theoreticians of the British Trotskyists in the Second World War, and uh, uh, analysed deformed workers' states and colonial revolution and is identified with the militant tendency in Britain. So uh, we were part, uh, we were doing uh, work inside uh, the Labour Party, and in the 80s were known as the fifth largest uh, political party in Britain, had about 8,000 members back then, uh, three MPs, uh, uh, Liverpool Labour Council was Marxist-led, and that's the tradition we come out of. 
So um, I guess that's the quickest I can put it forward. Right. So um, in Britain, the the large, I uh, think of the Trotskyist parties, you were the second largest are the largest i know that they, well, in the uh, 80s yeah. were the largest in the 80s uh, the artists in the yeah. 90s the swp uk sort of yes yeah. had its rise and subsequent fall um, unfortunately there was a there was a split and uh, a group around uh, peter taff left the labor party and mm-hmm. uh, ted grant and alan woods uh, went on to build the imt okay um and alan woods is kind of associated as the uh sort of the standard bearer for Ted Grant's legacy. Also, I think he's most famous in America for um, being the Trotskyist uh, friendly professor um, to Hugo Chavez. So um, going down there to Venezuela during the beginning of Chavismo. Um, yes. I, actually, it's very interesting how that uh, relationship developed. It was uh, in the nineties, which were a period of reaction, mm-hmm. uh, fall of the, Berlin Wall, um, rise of sort of Blairism, and uh, actually Ted Grant and Alan, Wo- uh, Alan Woods wrote a book together called Reason and Revolt, Marxist mm-hmm. Philosophy and Modern Science. Uh, it's a fantastic book, uh, it's kind of like an updating of Engels' uh, Dialectics of Nature. And uh, Hugo Chavez read that book and contacted Alan in order to uh, uh, discuss about it. And Alan Woods was invited onto Ala Presidente uh, Chavez's uh, TV program uh, on the basis of Marxist philosophy, of all things. And interestingly, this work and the ideas of Marxist philosophy have been incredibly influential in building on-the-ground Marxism. It's not some sort of abstract philosophizing. It is absolutely vital for building uh, an alternative to capitalism. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would say that it's been interesting because uh, watching the IMT, I am sort of a trot spotter. Um, um, and for, for personal reasons, um, having to do my own um, political background, but the IMT's trajectory has been, was really big in the eighties, um, which is, you know, when I was a wee babe. Um, and then it sort of came back on the scene around here in, in Anglo North America. Um, I feel like in the late nineties and again, before my time, and I saw it's, it's, it's fortunes wax and wane. I'm not as familiar with its uh, history in Canada. So would you like to talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, well, uh, I joined the, the Marxist movement back in the early 90s in Britain, you might guess from my accent, I mm-hmm. wasn't born in Canada. And and I, and I just ended up moving uh, to Canada for personal reasons, uh, study at university. And uh, that was back in, what, 1999. And uh, three of us started up a group in Canada. And, uh, and now we're actually the largest group on the revolutionary left in Canada. Uh, and actually, our, our organization in the States dates from a similar period in the late 90s and and, ha- and has been uh, growing very rapidly again. And, and so the irony is, is you now I mentioned dialectical materialism and Marxist theory, reason and revolt. We played, played a really strong emphasis on ideas and theory. 
mm-hmm. when many other organizations would say, oh, ideas don't matter. Just get active, get, get active, you know, activism, activism, activism. And, and, and then sort of get in all of these sort of non-Marxist academic ideas. And th- th- this, in many ways, parallels the birth of Russian Marxism, Plekhanov, um, over 100 years ago. And, I, and of course, the beginnings are always very difficult and very slow. But on the basis of that firm foundation in Canada, the States, in Britain, uh, Pakistan, uh, Russia, Italy, Brazil, Mexico, other countries, we've really been developing very impressively. And you don't have to make ideological compromises to grow. It's ex- exactly the opposite. If you end up making ideological compromises, it's it's a shortcut over a cliff to uh, quote Ted Grant. I th- um I think about the various cliffite tendencies, and for those who don't, who aren't trot spotters like myself, um, that's the, those are the heterodox Trotskyist tendencies around Tony Cliff, who uh, had a more left comma adjacent theory about the nature of the USSR, um, but in other ways was radically different. That he went more. <sighs> Theoretically, they were never reformists, but when you watch what they published and how they engaged mm-hmm. in campaigns, and particularly in the United States and the UK, um, you couldn't tell that. <laughs> so um, I, I can't say that for the IMT. Also, the IMT, however, doesn't have the kind of, uh, in, in my opinion, the kind of ultra sectarian um, reputation of groups like the Spartacist League splits. No. So the entire opposite approach. You have to take people from where they are. And, and that is the tradition of Trotsky's transitional program, right? That it is taking people from what they are, th- from where they are, that the crisis of capitalism doesn't break out everywhere at exactly the same time and in exactly the same way. It breaks out in a whole bunch of different issues, be they economic or social uh, or or war or anything else and the because working class revolutionary organization has been thrown back now we don't pretend we're mass organizations we're not so the ideas of revolutionary marxism are not mass ideas mm-hmm. and so the working class doesn't automatically have a revolutionary consciousness but they may desperately want justice over a specific issue be it housing homelessness uh, racism, uh, jobs, whatever, environment, free education, you know, any of these issues. And people will get active over those issues. And it's our job to explain. So, yes, let's fight for that. But understand this is just one aspect of the broader crisis of capitalism. And if you really want to get what you want and you want to get all the other stuff that you want, you have to fight for socialism and build a revolutionary organization. So, so that is the non-sectarian method of taking people from where they are and understanding why somebody doesn't have a full revolutionary consciousness right away but with the with a pedagogical approach you can lead them there okay and i would uh ask then um the imt in the united states has a has a has been growing i think mm-hmm. uh, partly from the rapid collapse uh, um, and then disintegration of the ISO 
and partly just to other things related to people being frustrated with the reformist end of um, the DSA and the IMT's relationship to DSA, I think is complicated. I'm not going to ask you to speak to that. I'd actually need an American branch member to speak to that a little bit more explicitly. Um, but uh, similarly, I think um, the attitude towards both the Labour Party in the UK and um, the NDP in Canada probably needs to be teased out a little bit. So would you like to explain how the IMT relates to uh, those organizations, those broader, larger political parties? I sh I sh I'll give you a little bit on the United States first. Okay. Uh, from my understanding, so I, I'm not, I, I live in Toronto, um, so I'm mm. not on the grounds in, in the States. But my understanding, I think one of the major drivers of our growth in the United States is, was the capitulation of Bernie Sanders. Mm. Right? That uh, I, I remember comrades talking about the Bernie bump when he capitulated for the second time and supported Biden. Uh, after supporting Clinton before, that there was a whole layer of people who said this is a dead end being the tail of the Democrats. Uh, no way. And then there, I think uh, I heard people saying that was uh, hundreds of people every day writing into our website saying, I want to join uh, Democrats are a dead end. Uh, I want revolutionary socialism. And uh, and so I think I think that's a major driver. Uh but to, to go to your sort of subsequent question about mm -hmm. Labour and the NDP, well, the big tragedy of American politics is, uh, well, I think it, it was the largest working class on the planet. Now I think it's the second largest after mm -hmm. China. And, but no Labour Party, no Workers' Party, that you're stuck with the, uh, the Republicans, right? So... Same, yeah. same ruling class, same party functionally, right? And whereas Britain and Canada both have Labour parties, uh, British one came first, and and Lenin actually advised the British communists to affiliate to the Labour Party, and uh, and, and work within it. And uh, in Canada, you have the New Democratic Party, nothing to do with the American Democrats, mm -hmm. that was first. Uh, first foundations were in the 30s during the Great Depression, united with the Canadian Labour Congress to form a proper Labour Party in the 50s. And, uh, and that has been a point of reference for the Canadian left uh, going forward. Uh, and, and, and many of the reforms gained in Canada mm -hmm. are, are, are partially due to the fact that we have a uh, bourgeois Labour Party, to use Lenin's term. Right? Canada has healthcare, uh, something that uh, I'm sure you'd like in the States. Uh, and so ha having that organisation and how revolutionaries relate to it is very important. Uh, so it's, it's a reformist party. It's a pro-capitalist party. And you could take a, just a sectarian approach and denounce it. And you would be cutting yourself off to the political expression of the trade unions and to mm. many working class people. Uh, but how, that all being said, the, the Canadian NDP has been drifting right, rightwards for the last decade or so, mm -hmm. and not many radical youth are that interested in the party, to be honest. So most of our work is outside the NDP. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's open, we organise Marxist reading groups, uh, in, intervene on demonstrations, 
student work, trade union work. So it's it's open Marxist organization, but uh, we don't sort of call the NDP a capitalist party because it's not. It's not a bourgeois party in that sense. And there's a possibility that uh, when working class people move, it will have be expressed in the NDP, although that's not a guarantee either. Mm-hmm. Of course, in Britain, you had Jeremy Corbyn. Right. Right. And uh, and that was an expression of the radicalization in British society. And so it's necessary to be there, but not be there in a capitulating to reformism, precisely the opposite, fighting reformism and then also uh, explaining to people even the left reformism reformism of people like Corbyn isn't sufficient. You need to go all the way to revolutionary Marxism. Okay. Um, For my audience who may not be as familiar with uh, the bourgeois labor party distinction, that is a labor party under bourgeois conditions that usually forms historically speaking from the coalition of um, our a merger with the a social um a kind of socialist although not always actually technically speaking it doesn't technically have to be a a reformist socialist party with with a coalition of unions is generally how it's historically happened um in the US that never happened for two reasons the 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 SPA which would have been our natural candidate for that which was a mass party or relatively mass party for the time in the 19 teens and 20s was recapitulated into the democratic party during the great depression for a variety of reasons a lot of which had to do with wilson imprisoning debs and making the vote irrelevant um and then the actually, I, I'd I'd argue what really killed the mm-hmm. Eugene Debs's um, Socialist Party uh, was the Communist Party. Oh uh, uh, yeah, right, yeah. and and for good reason, right? Because the the Socialist Party was kind of a a very heterogeneous formation, whereas the you had the actually just last week was the hundredth anniversary of the Communist Party of Canada, um, and. The fact is that the American and the Canadian Communist parties led the best elements of the working class in the 1920s and the sort of reformist organisations before them, they collapsed and their best layers joined the Communist parties. But then sadly, they degenerated into Stalinism uh, and missed the revolutionary conditions of the 1930s. Right. And it also um, between the generation of Stalinism and popular frontism with the Democratic Party put them in an impossible yeah. coalition, which they have never, you know, our historical C, uh, CP is still in. Um, so, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, I think maybe last, um, yeah, I think maybe the last cycle was the first time they didn't endorse the most establishment candidate in the race. Right. So it's 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 a very strange. Um, well, there was I remember the yeah the the American CP was saying that uh, uh, Trump is fascism, but I I'm old enough to remember when they were saying that George Bush Jr. is fascism. Right. But now you've got Biden hugging uh, uh, George Bush, right? And so it's like, who's the fascist now? It's, it gets silly. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I also remember when they were calling George Bush a fascist. So it's, it, it, we, there's another thing I'd like to mention in the case of the United States, though, is the Taft-Hartley Act effectively made the coalition of unions and the, any kind of political force illegal. Um, and 
that's been a huge barrier here in the States. Um, and also probably part of why our union movement has been so sclerotic for until very, very recently. Um, but, but you know, illegality you, doesn't necessarily stop you organizing. That's like, true. I mean, Tsarist Russia was pretty illegal. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of illegality in Tsarist Russia. Um, agreed. So. <laughs> but we have we have not. Um, I would argue, actually, in America, the height of the labor union, uh, both radicalism and effectiveness, they were mostly illegal. Um, but um, official labor union them and their leaders being what they are, having the ties that they've had to the Democratic Party has been somewhat disastrous. Um, in Canada, the NDPs move right. I, I think it's interesting to contrast the NDP with labor because labor have been moving right um, for at least 20 years. You have Corbyn as a kind of organic response to that, although it looks like we're back on the rightward trajectory um, in, uh, in the UK proper. It's going to be interesting, however, seeing what's going on in Scotland and in um, the increasingly uh, devolving parts of Great Britain. Mm -hmm. um, but in Canada, it's been harder. You know, I, I lived in Canada for a while in, in the Maritimes when I was a kid, um, although I've spent the vast uh, part of my life in the states and um but canada's i think uh political the ndp's relationship to the liberals is i think is hard for americans to really understand um would you like to go into that a little bit and maybe how that's pulled the ndp rightward in the last decade or so well it's it's the same thing with reformism Mm -hmm. that they always have this mantra of we have to moderate to win. And what they end up doing is moderating to lose because then you might as, if there's not that much difference between the Labour Party, the NDP and the Liberals, and in Canada, the Liberals are the larger party, the more successful party, then people are opposed to the right wing, the Conservatives. Then they go, well, uh, it's not I, I my opinions are more with the NDP, but I'm afraid of the conservatives and there's not much difference. So I might as well vote liberal to keep the Tory out. Right. And and that's the perpetual cycle. Actually, ironically, the NDP wasn't as right wing as Blair. Mm -hmm. um, but then the NDP was not as left wing as Corbyn. Uh, so I, and partially the existence of the Liberals had meant that the NDP had to be a certain degree to the left, otherwise it would have been totally irrelevant and would have totally collapsed. Um, but it keeps compromising, right, that uh, the NDP is currently in power in British Columbia in, mm -hmm. in the province on the West Coast, and they're, they're absolutely no different from a Liberal government. They were in power in Alberta, and they're all pro-pipelines and pro-the oil sector and pro-tax cuts and pro-wage freezes for the public sector. And, uh, and so that really demoralizes people. Uh, but still, there is that relationship with the trade unions. And, and, and still, there, it is better to have a political expression than to have nothing like the United States. I would agree. I, I was uh, going to ask you about Alberta because I, for um, people in the United States, because I will, I will always say that in my travels around the world, 
Um, almost everybody's more familiar with our politics than we are with theirs. Um, yep. Except we kind of follow Britain for reasons that I think are imperial nostalgia or something but um because americans seem to know what's going on in the uk if they're educated but um alberta is analogous to texas totally. um, <laughs> um so so the ndp coming to power in alberta is actually a bigger deal than it sounds and that and it's interesting because it kind of also proved that that they could they weren't just having to play a role of being like the slightly to the left of, of um, the liberal party and very, very um, urban liberal cosmopolitan areas like British Columbia. Um, they could actually take a quote red, uh, well, blue province in your, <laughs> in your pro- parlance, red province in ours. I always hate that we got the color <laughs> association backwards. That's actually very recent in the United States too, but whatever. Um, it's only 20 years old really oh i didn't yeah. know that it, it comes out of the it comes out of the first bush administration um uh election on television they just used red for the republicans arbitrarily and it stuck and right. well the irritating thing about canada is that the liberals are red right uh and the ndp is orange which is just automatically uh, a weak color yes no boo <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know that actually, I but, why the ndp was orange but yes I, I can tell you about alberta yeah so so alberta is traditionally mm-hmm. uh you know redneck canada bible belt canada uh it's all uh catlin crude uh there's the calgary stampede where you know everybody wears their cowboy hats and cowboy boots and uh, all the rest of it. And so all those Texas stereotypes, you can just put them on Alberta. But then the Socialist Party, mm-hmm. technically, the Reformist Labour Party went from being like third or fourth place, like 10% of the vote. And on the basis of the complete collapse and corruption of the Conservative government, uh, was jettisoned into first place. And that was back in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and on a sort of a modest reformist platform, that they came in saying that they were going to uh, raise corporate taxes. They were going to uh, raise uh, money on the, the oil barons, on the oil bosses, and, and, and a, a number of yeah, – raised the minimum wage. So I, I'm trying to remember. It was like six years ago. Exact, but uh, they, they were calling for stuff that would improve the conditions of the working class. Now – uh, so that was sim- uh, symptomatically really important and shows what could happen in any country where, you know, don't, ju- don't just write people off as automatically redneck and reactionary. Rapid change can happen. Now, sadly, because they were reformists, they capitulated. And so a lot of things that were in their election platform that was good, they didn't implement and, and they, moved, they moved to the right and then got kicked out. Although now they're actually back to number one in the polls because the uh, uh, the, the conservatives got back in and uh, total COVID idiots don't, you know, allowed the uh, infection rates to run crazy. And uh, and actually, I think uh, last month, Alberta had the worst infection rate in North America. Wow. Yeah, worse than the States. Like Canada was quite smug for a while saying, well, we're, okay, things aren't great here, but at least we're not Trump's America. 
in terms of COVID. But actually, last month, Alberta was worse than anywhere else uh, in North America. And uh, and now the NDP is back in first place in the polls. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so the IMT is a revolutionary po- party, and it also holds to a fairly um, traditional Trotskyist view of the function of the transitional program. And again, I'm assuming that my audience, most of them don't understand Trotskyism. Um, can we talk about the transitional program? Because that actually is something unique to to uh, Trotskyist forms of of Leninism and to Marxism. So, yeah, well, it really is. Uh, Trotsky expressed this in a, a fantastic short uh, document, about thirty pages, uh, written in nineteen thirty eight, and and it really is the distilled conclusions of Bolshevik organization. Uh, organization that capitalism in crisis creates specific crises and uh, and it was also combined with a crisis of revolutionary leadership that in the 30s and today the the mass organizations of the working class either have reformist or stalinist leaderships who when uh, so when the workers try to move, they face this barrier by uh, those uh, fa- failed bankrupt leaderships. And so this is a way for uh, mass consciousness to have a bridge over to revolutionary consciousness from the specific to the general, the specific injustice, the specific crisis to the general crisis, but also to isolated small groups of revolutionaries in organizations of dozens or hundreds or occasionally thousands to actually gain the ear of the masses as well. So, yeah, that, that's, and, and Trotsky developed, you know, if you, I really encourage people, Google it, find it online, read it. It's a short read. You can read it in an hour or two. And, and there he details the method, but also a whole series of transitional demands that were relevant in 1938. Mm-hmm. The point is to update it for the issues that are relevant to today. You know, like today we call for free education. To, today we call for expropriate the polluters to stop the environmental crisis. Uh, you know, so there are issues that uh, speak to people more today that didn't necessarily were on the political radar in 1938. But there is a whole method of taking people from where they are uh, to revolutionary conclusions. And this was kind of an answer to the old um, right socialists. And I say right socialists. I don't mean they were right wingers. I just mean they're right wing on the spectrum of yeah. Marxism. Um, the old right socialist min-max program yes. model. Um, and, you know, the Bolshevik uh, critique of the min-max program model from the end of the second international forward is that you got stuck defending the minimum program. You never got to anything like beginning to approach um the maximal program and defining even what it was so um and you also had the maximalists oh yeah who are also (laughs) sterile sectarians right so it's like nothing but full communism to tomorrow and tomorrow is a concession is uh is enough uh rather than actually yeah fighting in the here and now 
Yeah, the abolition of uh, all forms of value immediately right now. Yes. Um, and when you ask them how they're going to do that, it frankly nowadays tends to be collapsarian, but it it used to be all kinds of different things. Yes. Um, and uh, that's why when I spell out, when I try to introduce people to the spectrum of Marxism, I always mention that Trotskyism is part of the left opposition, not of left communism, which is which depending on how maximalist you were as left communist could have been what exactly what we're talking about, which is total abstentionism, no participation in any form of electoralism, mm-hmm. um, no transitional uh, phases, no stages at all um, often, um, which I don't know how that works, but um, and so, and so that's, that's the difference between the maximalist and then the minimalist program uh is or the min max program which is the minimalist program is is implemented by social democrats but they they hint towards a maximalist program eventually one day but they never even kind of get close to defining it and so the transitional program is supposed to kind of start off as a bridge as opposed to getting stuck actually actually i'll give you a good example uh harking back to uh uh, the collapse of the ISO and sort of the the cliff uh, tradition mm-hmm. that uh, I, I, one of their main demands uh, was tax the rich, mm-hmm. and in my in my view that is a reformist demand, not a transitional demand, because tax the rich is essentially keeping control and ownership by the rich by the capitalist class, right. Right, and that, and and you'd see them on demos all the time. Tax the rich, tax the rich. Whereas our thing is nationalization, nationalization, expropriation, workers' control. Uh, that is a transitional demand. Uh, that talks about workers' ownership and workers' control and workers' management and a socialist planned economy. Right. So a big one here. There's been a huge bailout of Air Canada, mm-hmm. uh, and just before the bailout, they the executives just. Uh, gifted themselves uh, millions and millions of dollars of bonuses while they're laying off workers and they were holding all of these uh, uh, flights hostage. They weren't giving people their uh, money back for the flights they paid for. And so the government basically bailed them out for enough money, like I think it was five and a half billion or $6 billion, which was enough to buy out Air Canada and nationalise it. And and so they, that's one aspect of the crisis. And, and Canada, obviously, having good air transport is vital for very various regions in the north, especially. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to get there is to flight and um, the amazing distances. So uh, nationalize Air Canada is a very very good transitional demand. Whereas tax Air Canada, tax the rich, it, it's entirely reformist. And the Cliffites, yeah, the ISO type. Uh, totally capitulated that because they didn't want to talk about nationalization and socialism and workers control. Yeah. when I would listen to the Cliffite view of uh, transitional demands, I actually couldn't tell how it was historically any different from a minimum program. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So to go more into uh, Canada specific issues, um, I think there's a couple of things that have come up in the last couple of months that I think uh, have been big challenges to Canada. One uh, has been uh, vaccine nationalism. Um, mm-hmm. um, I th- and another has been that 
and maybe we can dive in on this because it kind of parallels with with events in America um, or in the States. I won't be imperialistic right now. Um, <laughs> uh, it parallels with events in, in the States um, is the discovery of, what is it, 200, uh, 250 unmarked indigenous uh it's a mass grave. Mass graves. Yeah, it's a mass grave at was one residential, residential school. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's one residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. And uh, they found unmarked graves, mass grave of 215 indigenous kids. And and that just got revealed, uh, I think, a few days ago. And, uh, and there's a wave of revulsion. But this is on the backs of a rising indigenous movement they and and this is in some ways this is like a reflection of the black lives matter movement in the states mm-hmm. right so racism in canada is not the same as racism in the states that uh the the that there was slavery in canada's history but not to the same degree as in the states it's uh, abolished the, way earlier <laughs> yes and um and and well, I shouldn't prettify Canadian imperialism. Uh, <laughs> in, that it had its own crimes, and its crimes were far worse against the indigenous people, and who were the owners of this land before the uh, uh, the colonialists came here, the British and the French, mm-hmm. right? And and it's been an utter genocide there was actually they called the the residential schools a cultural genocide but they were actually an actual genocide that you know 150,000 or so kids seized from their parents from the 19th century all the way up until i think the last residential school closed in the 1990s yeah it was in my lifetime <laughs> yeah and with the with the aim of killing the Indian in the child, civilized civilizing the Indian, uh, so taken far away from their families, uh, their language was suppressed, their culture was suppressed. There was physical abuse, there was sexual abuse, there was massive disease, tuberculosis, because of the terrible conditions. In fact, the death rate in residential schools was worse for the death rate of children in residential schools was worse than the death rate of Canadian soldiers in the second world war. Mm. Um, and now, and they estimate that I think something like 6,000 children died, but that's a massive underestimation. And just at this one school, they found this, you know, unmarked mass grave for 215. The government is even refu- is, was refusing to give the funds to search every school for similar mass graves, like 150 or so schools across the country, many of them run by the church, mm-hmm. either the Catholic church or the Anglican church or, or other churches. And it's a total crime. But uh, we can feel very guilty about this. But the what is different now is that I'd say 10 years ago and further in the past, the indigenous people used to rise up, but the general population didn't care. Hmm. Now there is actually mass solidarity because only 4% of Canadian population are indigenous. 
So it's not as if the indigenous population can overthrow the Canadian state all by itself. But now there is sort of massive sympathy. There's opposition to pipelines going, being forced through indigenous lands, uh, polluting those lands, polluting that territory, and uh, seizing sort of housing estates in, in the suburbs that, that are indigenous land. And, and now there, there's a large working class solidarity. Actually, even in, in one situation, in Baffin land, up uh, north of the Ar Arctic Circle, there's a mine there, and uh, with uh, sort of 700 miners who've flown in, and uh, the, the, the mine owners uh, refused to do a deal with the local uh, 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 indigenous uh, nation. And, and so the indigenous people blockaded the, air, uh, the airstrip. Mm. And you'd expect the miners to be opposed to the indigenous, but in fact, they sent them a solidarity message saying, we support you whole, wholeheartedly. And we have the same enemy. So, so that's the lesson of class solidarity. And that's what's new. And, that actually what, and that's what really makes this revolutionary. Um, how, are the, how are things developing around this in Canada at, at the moment? So there's, there's mass solidarity in ways that there kind of has not been in the past. Um, I, we've seen similar things in the U.S. where uh, I, I've talked to people informally and talked about how the dividends of whiteness don't seem to be paying the same thing as they used to be because solidarity has increased every round in the last 30 years. Um, but it, it does seem, uh, it does seem, that does seem unique to Canada. I've, I've been looking at, for example, that the indigenous uh, lifespan in Canada is, with most tribes, five to seven years shorter than than non-indigenous, and in some tribes, as much as twenty years shorter. That those are blips, um, but um, but it it is odd, um, and the murder rates are significant, like very significantly higher. I, it mirrors actually um, pretty closely to indigenous in the United States. And for those who don't know, um, indigenous in the United States are the most murdered, most statistically likely to be in prison. The reason why you don't hear about it is at this point, they're like 0.5% of the population or something like that. They're, they're not even a full 1%. Um, but the, the uh, for those, for those in America who think Canada's, you know, super nice, friendly uh, Anglo North America, um, the uh, indigenous struggle there is pretty similar to ours. Um, uh, There's horrendous conditions, right? So the the social indicators, uh, both on reserve and uh, in inner city um, uh, First Nations communities, that uh, it, it's like a third world country. Mm -hmm. so you can have like, unemployment rates are double the national average. Uh, suicide rates are something like four times higher than the the national average. Incarceration rates are like eight times higher. Uh, tuberculosis uh, is making a comeback. Uh, it, it's just horrendous conditions on uh, called reserves in Canada, not reservations. Uh, mm -hmm. Reservations, uh, but uh, there is a total scandal of uh, tainted water on reserves. Mm -hmm. So you cannot drink the water. It's called boil water advisories, and uh, some and it's just like dozens and dozens of of reserves and the. The 
I think they estimated the cost to fix the uh, tainted water was something like three billion dollars, but then and which the government refuses to do. But then they spent four and a half billion dollars to buy an American pipeline to ram that through uh, indigenous lands. So all this money for all interests, but nothing for uh, indigenous communities. And people see the hypocrisy. People see the hypocrisy. And, and, and it is related to the environment issue. It's not just the environmental issue, obviously. Uh, that you can, you can sometimes also have these sort of, frankly, racist ideas that uh, indigenous people are all, you know, communing with nature. And it's like, no, they're just people. They're just people trying to survive. But uh, they have been in the way of uh, capitalist resource development uh, for centuries. And when they're in the way, they're a hassle. And it's like, get rid of them. Mm. Um. When we, when we talk about uh, settler colonialism in, in all of the Americas, um, because it's particularly pernicious in, in Anglo-North America, but it's um, the clearing out of, of indigenous peoples is by no way unique. And in fact, a big part of the anti-communist um, wars in Latin America was ridding the countryside of peasants for capitalist development. Um, and I have, I have found that this is something that, that is finally beginning to stir non-indigenous consciousness. Some, and, and more than, you know, more than Canada, more than in the States, although in the States is still an under understood issue. Um, I was going to ask you, do the reserves have the same jurisdictional problems as the reservations? We have problems here of like indigenous women being murdered and there's no way to investigate it because it's not on reservation land. Um, but who has jurisdiction is basically only the FBI and they have little incentive to look into it. Um, do you have similar? I've, I've heard that there are similar problems in Canada, but I don't know the structure. There's a huge problem of missing and murdered indigenous women. That's a huge. I don't know about that jurisdictional problem. Uh, that uh, it's not that uh, the police don't have the right jurisdiction to uh, investigate. They just don't care. They just don't care, even if they have the jurisdiction, right? And and yes, there are many different police forces. The the, the big one everybody knows is the uh, the RCMP, the the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the, the Mounties in the red serge uniforms that mm-hmm. are supposed to be in choirs and things like that. But they were actually founded to police and oppress indigenous uh, populations, going all the way back to the Metis Rebellion, uh, the Metis Revolution in Manitoba in the 19th century. So that's uh, uh but there, there yes there's thousands and thousands of missing and murdered indigenous women and repeated examples of the police just not caring and and not investigating Ugh. um but but actually one thing um there uh, peop- there's this idea of settler colonialism mm-hmm. and uh I've been careful using that term. I, okay. I would, I, I'd advise carefulness using that term because 
it can actually uh, be used to uh, in a postmodernist way, mm. right? Okay. That the, the the driving force of uh, colonization was white supremacy and this inherent racism in white people, and it ends up being kind of a declassed, um, yes, sort of idealist. Uh, philosophical idealist conception, ideas first, when in fact colonialism, uh, the colonization of the Americas, uh, wasn't because the British and the French and the Spanish and the Portuguese just uh, felt like being racist. No, the colonization of the Americas wasn't white supremacy, it was green supremacy, it was about money. And so it's a form of imperialism. And uh, because that you can have these postmodernist ideas that somehow say that settler populations, white Canadians, white Americans, etc., benefit from the impression of the indigenous or the oppression of black people or from racism, and it's not true. Uh, the uh, the non-indigenous working class does not benefit from the oppression of other sectors of the working class, uh, as Marx said. A people that oppresses an, another can never be free. And the way to end these oppressions is fighting against the capitalists and the state that are perpetuating them. So I, I actually, I think one of, one of the reasons for the growth of the IMT mm-hmm. is because we have taken, we, we haven't succumbed to these sort of, for lack of a better term, petty bourgeois academic ideas of identity politics, intersectionality, postmodernism. and uh, have instead focused on class unity, fighting oppression, united en masse all sectors of the working class and explaining how any oppression uh, is detrimental to all of us. Although, of course, the oppressed feel it much more harshly than the less oppressed layers. I would even add uh, to this, um, my my use of the terminology there is more in, in sync with popular with usage, and I, I get I get the concern. Um, I also was thinking about the another way in which it can be used, which is the um, Maoist way, which I guess is related to the postmodern yes. way, which is the inverting of the causal relationship. So you know, uh, the classical revision of Maoism is flipping the contradictions and that framework that they've had and making imperialism the driver not um capitalism and well they've uh, even stopped using the word imperialism they they use settler colonialism uh and they it's like maoist third worldism that -hmm. there is no western working class and the the western working class benefits from the oppression of uh the masses of the so-called third world or the colonial world and and it's not true. It's not true. Um, so let's uh, let's let's get back into this class. Uh, let's, let's say class uh, class primary analysis of social oppressions because. In the United States, we've had a um, recent expanding accusation of of class reductionism, mm-hmm. um, and 
while I while most of the people who get accused of it are actually social democrats of some variety, honestly, um, what I find interesting is that if you if you take the class primary analysis, you actually can more readily explain the development of the transatlantic slave trade of um you know the the needs to racialize things as a way of justifying categories that had previously been justified on religious grounds um because the mode of production was tied into religion formally in a way that it is not in the modern world i mean like um these to me are more explanatory um and more explanatory of conditions like um uh, what is commonly called settler colonialism or settler imperialism or whatever. Um, I also worry about, you know, you, you talk about the postmodernism way. I've seen settler colonial thrown around in a way that is um, like as if into people, as this individual people can like do anything about it as if it's a matter of belief yes. or recognition, which is sort of ridiculous. Well, there's this talk to decolonize. And, and and when I first heard that, it's like, great, we'll, we'll overthrow the Canadian state and we'll unite towards that. It's like, no, 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 we'll decolonize your mind. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, so it's all in the realm of ideology. And it's like, well, it's, uh, again, all, all this identity politics stuff that it's strongly sort of like, uh, because it comes of academia, it really emphasizes the ideology and it de-emphasizes the material relations. Mm-hmm. Whereas racism ex- racism exists because it's incredibly profitable. If you can set worker against worker for you know racial reasons or religious reasons or any you know or sexuality reasons or anything like that, you set worker against worker. Okay, the most you, you've got your sort of other your pilloried uh, identity. They're going to be the worst off, but the so-called privileged aren't privileged at all because faced with the competition from the, the most oppressed layer, they also have to accept worse wages and conditions. And it's a very convenient outlet. Like Trump used it fantastically. Right. You know, blame Muslims, blame immigrants, blame, blame Antifa, right? Blame, blame the other and we're all fighting each other rather than fighting the system, fighting the capitalist, fighting the state. So that, that's why uh, racism and, and these uh, oppressions exist. They're very useful. They're very profitable. But we need to see beyond the sort of the ideological superstructure to the, the real material relations underneath it all. And that, and that is the, uh, the road to both overthrowing the oppression by explaining how these oppressive things are, are detrimental to all of the sectors of the working class, the multiracial working class. And it also leads you to the end solution. Uh, so you unite, you fight, you overthrow, and you build a new society that isn't, doesn't need to set people against people. Precisely the opposite needs to build equality. Um. I was. I think I'm going to pivot a little bit, and we'll talk about because it's been implied in our conversation about terminology. One thing I didn't think I'd see in my lifetime from the '90s was the, in the Anglo sphere anyway, was the uh, 
the revitalization of even small camps of Marxist Leninist of of classical Stalinist um, are um, Dungist or what you know varieties in in North America. I didn't think I would see that, um, and it seems like since the um, that we've seen the biggest resurgence of that since the new communist movement in the seventies. Um, what do you think is driving that? Um, well, <laughs> it's an internet phenomenon. Yeah, I kind of think so it's, too. It's t- I like um, I got demonstrations. I've organized demonstrations, and and I, I actually I've talked to people online. And they said, oh, and people go, well, how, why are there so many left groups? You know, why, why is there such a splintering of the left? It's like, what do you mean there's so many left groups? There's five. What do you mean? I've seen like, you know, hundreds online. It's like, no, go to a demonstration. There's five. And that's, that's only at a big demonstration. Uh, all the others are purely online. And this um, sort of dengist, you know, not even Maoist, Mm-hmm. Um, sort of total worshipping of China. It's it's a really bizarre phenomenon, and it's it's you know, China is uh, a nothing socialist about China. There was well, there was uh, the definition of socialism is not not a short answer. So yes, there was uh, something that was attempting to transition into socialism at one it, time. It was a transitional. <laughs> It was a transitional society. It was not a capitalist society. Right. Uh, it, it was a planned economy. It was a bureaucratically planned economy, and there was no workers' democracy. But it transit. It's transitioned to a, a capitalist society and an imperialist power. A, a growing imperialist power, but you get yes, all all of these sort of ridiculous Deng apologists and. Uh, you know, and talking about socialist billionaires, socialist Chinese billionaires. And, and and if you think about it, all the Western corporations are investing in China mm-hmm. with the aid of the Chinese Communist Party. That's really got to raise some questions. Yep. Uh, like one of our uh, largest uh, sections of the international Marxist tendencies in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And... Pakistani working class is facing the oppression of Chinese imperialism, the Belt and Road Initiative, that that is totally being driven uh, on classic imperialist lines, the export of capital, the extraction of raw materials and cheap labor. Uh, it's the same with China in Africa. Now, having said this, uh, so, th- so there is this sort of bizarre sort of... Uh, distortion of what socialism is and it's like look if that's your socialism i'm sorry i'm not interested and you know what the canadian working class and the american working class is definitely not going to be interested right it's like go 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 to a union meeting and say hey we want everything to be like china see how far you get right you'll be and actually most of these people don't have any guts to do that and they never do any union work anyway um but uh as I'll, I'll say the opposite side. As a revolutionary in an imperialist Western country, my first, second, and third duty is to oppose the home of imperialism. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there is a sort of a, a new Cold War, if you like, uh, between USA and America's allies 
Canada and the rest of them uh, against China. And it's totally hypocritical, utterly hypocritical. Like, How dare they talk about the oppression of the Uyghurs in China when there are, you know, they're finding unmarked graves of indigenous children in Canada, right? Or selling billions and billions of dollars of arms to Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. to, to kill the people of Yemen, right? So our task is to oppose the hypocrisy of our imperialism, but you don't have to pretend that China is socialist to, to oppose your home imperialism, right? So I, I'm, I'm going to spend, you know, the majority of my time, yes, uh, calling out the hypocrisy of Canadian imperialism and American imperialism, but uh, I'm not going to pretend that China's socialist to do that. Well, yeah. Um, the only thing I would say about the internet phenomenon is there is one party in the United States that is actually fairly large, well, fa- fairly large amongst so- socialist sectarian scale. So I'd say probably, probably between five or 6,000 people. And then people need to put that in the comparison of a country of 320 million. So right. it's tiny, but, but historically speaking, fairly large that has um, become a, a very Stalinist in its culture. And that is the party for socialism and liberation. Right. Um, ironically, um, it started as a split from the, World Workers Party, which is a which was at one point a Sam Marciite faction Trotskyist party. Um, so you know, I, I always kind of joke that even in America, even our Stalinists were were originally Trotskyist. But right. <laughs> um, I, I I've seen yes, yeah, so called Trot factions move in that direction. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunately happened. It's happened a yes. couple of times. Um, uh. What, how, uh, when you're, when you're working on a broad socialist movement and and one thing I've always liked about the IMT, and I think is a subtle distinction that people don't understand because only really Trotskyist and a few other groups use this terminology. And it's not unique to Trotskyism, but, um, is the idea of a tendency. Um, and as opposed to a, you know, a strong sectarian pseudo party or, you know, whatever. Um, can you explain that and why that's important? And then um, to telegraph a little bit, we're going to talk about the importance of internationalism at the end. So, yeah, well, we don't pretend we're, we're, we're a mass revolutionary party. We're not. The task is to build mass revolutionary parties. And a more modest term is a tendency that we are the, the Marxist tendency of the workers movement. Right. And we aim to build mass revolutionary parties. Uh, but uh, and it's the, the t- I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's a point of principle to call ourselves a tendency. It's, it's just a more of a modest, modest um, description of what we actually are, that when you use the word party, people think, well, then you've got uh, uh, members of parliament or um, assembly or, you know, Congress, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you have union affiliations and stuff like that. And the task is to get there and not pretend you're there before you're actually there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the other part, yes, as, as you're saying, we are not a Canadian organization. We're not an American organization or a Mexican or a Brazilian organization. 
we are merely, you know, I, I'm, uh, I play a leading role in the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. And so we are one world organization with one world democracy on the best traditions of the third of Lenin's third international. And, and that's absolutely vital because capitalism is international. Capital is international. They have international class unity. They will always pick their class unity over their national unity. And the working class should do the same. Workers of the world unite. It's right there in the Communist Manifesto. And the various Stalinist factions have, uh, have capitulated to that. Um, actually, I, I once got in debate with one of these uh, sort of dengist uh, and, and asked him, all right, what does China teach the Canadian working class? So you're saying China's socialism. Okay, what should we do here to uh, emulate what they're doing in China? And he wriggled like a worm, could not answer the question, because once you relate it to working class politics on the ground in uh, in the West, uh, it's, it's got absolutely nothing positive to say. And, and you try to relate uh, the incredible exploitive conditions in China, and you try to relate that to the West, any trade unionist would immediately be repulsed. Now, of course, on the basis of uh, state capitalism, of the remnants of a planned economy and an educated working class, they've been able to develop means of production and develop uh, the working class. But so was, uh, but so was uh, the United States in the 20th century and Britain in the 19th century. Just because you've developed uh, the economy doesn't make it socialism. All right. Um, and one of the last things I'll say, and this is more American focused, um, there has been a development in the U.S. of a supposed Marxist resurgence. Um, I mm. use supposed advisedly. Um, but I would also say one of the downsides I've seen of it in most of its forms, it is methodologically nationalistic and, and yes we have to deal with nations and you have to deal with national bodies and you have to deal with national politics i get that um but in the sense that like most of these organizations for example the dsa the dsa left the socialist international now i understand not wanting to be in the socialist international it has some pretty sketchy pretty right-wing parties in it um i'm thinking of just off the top of my head like the pri in mexico yeah. um but they didn't join any other international to replace it. Um, so it's, and their understanding of, um, of, uh, of foreign politics, I've found to be naive at best, if they care at all. Um, uh, particularly on trying to support reformists in other countries without admitting the problems that they've run into. I can think of their misreporting stuff going on in Mexico, a country mm -hmm. that I lived in and know very well. Um, and they're kind of not knowing how to handle things um, in Canada. We don't, they don't talk about Canada much, actually. When you would think 
that it would come up a lot, both given the cultural and historical connections between the two countries and even between the two lefts. I mean, a lot of the in the 20s and 30s, a lot of the U.S. left actually literally absconded to, to Canada yes, and they yeah. did it again after the Vietnam War. So um, it's it's historically it has deep historical ties. Um, and um, what would you advise? How would you advise people to approach building internationalism? um into the left movement particularly in a in america where i think it's easier because of the u.s's hegemonic status and global capital mm -hmm. um you know it's second place uh in in global production to just not realize that everywhere else is important <laughs> right yes <laughs> um to, to be honest i don't uh i don't know a lot of the specifics on the uh, the dsa's politics in terms of international politics but uh, one, I, I, I do remember from various interviews of Bernie Sanders in the 80s and 90s, he said he was in favour of a Labour Party like the NDP and, mm -hmm. and said that in numerous in interviews, that he, he wanted to break from the Democrats and the unions to break to the Democrats and form a socialist Labour Party. And one of the, the big debate in the DSA is whether or not to break from the Democrats. That's the that's the key debate. And the fact is that if you're tied to the Democrats, you're tied to all their politics. If you're running people on the Democratic uh, ballot line, you're tied to those imperialist politics. And so it's inevitably going to bring out those contradictions and those confusions. Uh, so I, I don't think there's a solution for the DSA to create an international affiliation because I, I, I wouldn't know who they would affiliate to uh, that mm -hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't just re, uh, uh, continue the reformist confusions. But uh, I, I'd say the most important thing is developing a consistent anti-imperialist Marxist, Leninist, if you like, uh, conception of uh, where does imperialism come from and the need for class independence and class independence means breaking from the Democrats and class independence mean never supporting U.S. imperialism, but not, but not in a nationalist way, mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of international worker solidarity. Um, yeah. And I would say this is why I try to do uh, so many discussions with people from outside of the U.S. because I th I find that um, the even the U.S. relatively informed stance on the left tends to be myopic and um, also I mean that sometimes conversely they tend to see the outside world through pink colored glasses, right? Yes. Um, which can lead them to very strange like I've heard I've, you know you. As someone who's lived in Canada and been adjacent to the states, you you know how many people in the states will sometimes project uh, almost utopian status upon Canada. Yes. Well, you got all those Michael Moore movies as well, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's just like, oh, Canada's so wonderful. Although, oh, he did his only uh, feature film is actually quite funny, Canadian Bacon. Uh, <laughs> have you seen that one? Yes, I have. Yes, yes. There's like a whole bunch of rednecks declare cold war on Canada and try to invade, and it's very yeah. funny. It's it's pretty hilarious. But, it's Jim um, Candy, one of Jim Candy's last movies, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, 
and yeah it's it's interesting because i think it leads to things like not understanding the the extracted nature of the canadian economy particularly in terms of oil how dependent the uh canada is on on its oil revenues it leads to not understanding indigenous issues and it leads to um it leads to naivete about people like pierre trudeau um, oh god yeah and you know like so it's and justin trudeau his his uh legacy admission um yes uh son so it, it's it's led to this this uh misunderstanding i think of 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 international politics of canada um Corbynism, I think, uh, through the U.S. for a loop, um, I th- it was mostly approached as a equivalent to the Bernie Sanders campaign, which it kind of was and kind of wasn't. Um, uh, I'd say it's got a similar uh, impetus mm-hmm. in the sense that, uh, so if, if you think about it, there's class pressure from below looking for an outlet. And so the extreme anger in Britain had that expression through Corbyn. The extreme anger in the states has had the expression through Sanders, uh, and that's the objective, if you like, the broad political condition. Uh, but the subjective is the ideology of uh, Corbyn and Sanders, which is left reformist, and so they have made a whole series of mistakes and compromi- compromises. Uh, but even even you know, you can be critical of the leadership of the DSA for not breaking with the Democrats. But the rise of the DSA, well, it went from what, something like 5,000 to 50,000 yeah. members in a relatively but short period of time. In about two years. And the fi- like 5,000, which is where it had been locked in from like 1983, right. about when it was founded, to about 2016. Like it was a long, yeah. long time. So, so that's symptomatically really important. Mm. And yes, there's all these opinion polls. I think they're done by right wing uh, uh, agencies trying to scare uh, Republicans to donating to them say, Oh, all the youth are communists now. But there's a truth to these polls that uh, the support for socialism and communism revolution amongst the younger generation in the United States and in Canada, they haven't done as many polls in Canada, but it's fairly similar. That uh, it, it's real. But of course, people don't understand uh, every dot and comma of what these words mean. But that's our job. That's our job to explain it to people. It's much better trying to explain socialism and Marxism to someone who's already sympathetic than someone that's hostile. Right. So I I see that as an incredibly encouraging thing. Um, And actually, one of the crises of the left is just being miserable bastards, to, to, to be frank, of pessimism and just seeing reaction everywhere you look without realizing that people are radicalizing. People are radicalizing all across the planet. There's revolutionary movements going on all the time. There's class unity going on all the time. Like Latin America had a a wave of revolutionary movements just prior to to COVID. And then Colombia right now is is in revolt. And this is happening again and again. And this, this is what enthuses me and and shows that people are looking for this alternative. And if there was mass revolutionary organizations, that sentiment would have a mass expression. But sadly, we're numbered in the, sort of like the hundreds or occasionally the thousands. 
and it's difficult for us to reach the mass of the working class, but there is more than enough people who are interested in these ideas. All right. I agree. And thank you for coming on. Um, anything you'd like to say in closing? Uh, just check out our websites. Uh, our international one is Marxist.com. Uh, the Canadian one is Marxist.ca. Uh, I think our American one is socialistrevolution.org. So if you like what we had to say, then go to one of our websites and drop us a line. And thank you for listening to Varm Blog. If you'd like more, you can find us on YouTube in the show notes. For early audio access with ad-free, unexpurged audio, as well as additional show notes episodes and Q&A sessions, please visit our Patreon, where we have three levels of support. If you can't support us financially, we'd love your support in other ways. You can rate or review us at Apple Podcast or any podcast aggregator to help get our profile up, and you can share our videos on social media. We are affiliated with the Emancipation Network, a radical educational podcast network and research collective. If you'd like to check out our sister shows, From Alpha to Omega, General Intellect Unit, Swapside Chat, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, check them out at emancipation.network. And this was your host, T. Derek Varn, thanking our crew, um, Paul Channel Strip, all our friends at Emancipation Network, and Bitter Lake for providing our music. Check out Bitter Lake in the show notes, as well as Jason Miles' show, This Is Revolution, which provided us with the visual intro you will see on the YouTube channel. Thank you, and we hope to see you again very soon. listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra.
they can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.